Oh, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would do two things, that you would show us our need for Jesus and that you would give him to us. Amen. Well, as many of you have observed, I absolutely love teaching. I find myself at home in a room full of adults processing ideas about things that I care about. But last week, I found myself totally out of my element as I stood before our sixth grade confirmands to teach them about worship. I'll tell you, you middle schoolers, you freak me out. I had a wonderful time teaching you, but honestly, I was scared out of my mind. You intimidate me. Speaking to you, son, all right? God bless our student ministry workers, seriously. While I was teaching, I observed a dynamic that took me regrettably all the way back to my own middle school and junior high experience. There was a very interesting vibe in the room. It was palpable, and it was this. It felt like nearly every last young man and young woman in that room was very aware of their fellow middle schoolers and extremely concerned with what everybody else thought of them. It took me back to a conversation that I had with a middle school adventer only a couple of weeks ago, which jogged my memory about my own middle school experience. You see, when you're in middle school, It's overwhelming, and that overwhelming topped value is abject conformity. You're trying desperately hard just to be like everyone else. And anytime your difference shows, whether it's different clothes, a different haircut, whether or not you have a phone, or listen to different music, every time that difference shows, it's an extremely painful moment. For middle schoolers, the leading edge of that raw pain The place where we feel most vulnerable, most easily hurt, is when we are identified as different from our peers. It's a true and tender place. And as we grow older, we don't shed ourselves of these tender places. We merely transfer them. The leading edge of our pain might become, for college students, performance and output in our studies. For young adults, the leading edge of our pain might be the failed romantic relationships or confusion about what in the world you're supposed to do with your life. For older adults, the leading edge of pain might be the failed dreams of where I thought I'd be by now. For parents of empty nesters, the leading edge might be a wandering or wayward child and the constant self-questioning, could I have done better in raising him or her? For those who are older, the leading edge might be the loneliness of seeing so many people that you love die. Every last human being, Christian or not, lives life here and now with an open wound somewhere, a raw place. And John 9 is an account of a man with a raw place who had a life-changing encounter with our Lord Jesus Christ. The power of this passage gets amplified when we realize it's setting in the broader context of John's gospel, particularly in chapters 5 through 10. Throughout these five chapters, John gives us markers that tie Jesus' teaching and works to Jewish feasts and festivals. Check this out. Chapter 5, Jesus heals a 
paralyzed man. And John is quick to point out that it's done on one of the most important days of the Jewish week, the Sabbath. Chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with bread. And John is quick to point out that it's done during the Jewish Passover festival. Why? So that when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, everyone around, including us, realizes that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover feast. Chapter 7, John points out that Jesus is now ministering during the festival of tabernacles called Sukkot in Hebrew. During this festival, Jews would engage in ritualistic water drawing ceremonies. And in the midst of this ceremony, it's this moment when Jesus makes the point, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink and living water will flow from within you. And so it is for our context in these chapters, chapters 8 and 9, which continues in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. Every night during this feast, four huge lamps were lit to accompany joyful singing and dancing to celebrate and commemorate God's presence with Israel as they traveled to the Promised Land. But on the last night of the Feast of Tabernacles, the main candelabrum was not lit to signify that Israel was still awaiting its Messiah, its full salvation to come. Now get this, into this context, Jesus steps in and makes the grand statement in chapter 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoa, Jesus is making a cosmic statement about who he is in relation to Israel's and our salvation history. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. I am the light of the world. You can imagine the skepticism of Jesus' original hearers. You? You are the light of the world? You're the one who's going to shine on all this darkness and expose the truth before our eyes? Well, if you are, prove it. And Jesus replies, game on. And this is how chapter 9 for our text today begins, with Jesus proving that he is the light of the world. And how does he do this? By miraculously shining the light on the eyes of a blind man to heal him. This story is marvelous on so many levels. Many point out that John and his rendering of this account is nothing short of literary genius. It's good writing at its finest. Of the many things that we could observe, I want to focus on one thing. John's powerful contrast between the blind man and the Pharisees. In chapter 9, John puts the blind man and the Pharisees on parallel paths, but moving in opposite directions. The blind man progresses from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, from unbelief to faith. And the Pharisees progress from supposed spiritual sight to abject blindness and hardness of heart. Not to be missed in this whole episode is what has irked the Pharisees in particular. You see, the Pharisees were a particular group of, we could say, devout Christians who were concerned about how bad things had gotten for both the people of God and in the surrounding culture. The world is only getting worse and worse, they said. We need to reclaim, to hold on to what God has called us to do. 
In an effort to be different from culture and to seek to please the Lord, the Pharisees developed codes of conduct to help make sure that they and everyone else kept God's law in order to not mess things up again. And at the center of this code of conduct was strict rules about not working on the Sabbath, God's holy day. The Pharisees weren't necessarily bothered by the fact that Jesus evidently healed someone. Still, they were so upset they were questioning whether that was even true. No, the Pharisees were upset that Jesus did a work of healing on the Sabbath. That he had broken the rules. That Jesus was not being reverent. To cut to the chase, the Pharisees were so concerned with preserving what they had that they lost sight of God's glory and grace to the outsider. The man born blind was healed. What a miracle of God's grace. God's grace is so powerful and so arresting that it should totally eclipse whether or not Jesus broke the rules. The Pharisees couldn't see this grace because they were so fixated on whether or not Jesus had broken the rules, whether or not Jesus had been irreverent, whether or not Jesus had sinned. You can hear the exasperation in the voice of the blind man in verse 25 when he responds to the Pharisees. Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. And frankly, I don't care. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. Advent, I ask us, humbly and sincerely, What kind of secondary rules are you and I holding on to right now, white-knuckled, that actually might prevent others in the city of Birmingham from knowing the miraculous, healing power of the grace of God? The pharisaical spirit, alive and well in every last one of us, is a spirit that says, I know that I'm right It's a spirit that's just so sure that it's right, so convinced that it's on God's side. It's a spirit that is prone to speak frequently in us and them language. I confess it myself. I confess a pharisaical spirit. In me, and perhaps in many of us, is a horrible gospel pharisaism that is tempted to think we're the only church The only church in Birmingham that has it right. We get the gospel. We are the convicted Protestants. We aren't like those people out there. In Advent, I ask us, what else might we need to confess? What other things are we hanging on to that blind us to beholding the miraculous work of God in our midst? The scriptures today point out what's at stake in our white-knuckled Pharisaism. And boy, are the stakes high. We become so fixated on preserving our little kingdom, defended by a thousand arguments about why we do it right and why God is more pleased with us. We're so fixated on hanging on to the rules that we miss Jesus He's right in front of us in the liturgy every week, but we miss him. He's right in front of us at the table, but we miss him. He's right in front of us in our preaching and Bible study, but we miss him. And he's right in front of us 
on the streets and in our relationships, in the poor and the needy and the oppressed, but we miss him. We can't see him. We become blind to the miraculous work of God in our midst. Oh, hard heart, won't you break? Won't you let go of the thing that you're clinging to so tightly? Perhaps your heart feels like mine does right now, convicted and tenderized and addressed. I want to turn back to the beginning of this passage, which takes us back to the beginning of this sermon, where we, along with the blind man, find ourselves in that raw place with that open wound. The narrative sets the whole stage of this episode between Jesus and the blind man and the Pharisees by posing a theological question. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he would be born blind? And Jesus' answer is shocking to the disciples and it's shocking to us. It was neither that this man or his parents sinned, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. When the disciples ask this question, they're basically exposing what every last one of us thinks is God's MO when it comes to our sin. The default understanding of every last one of us isn't grace, but karma. We think that if bad things happen to us, it's because we've done something wrong and we're getting our just punishment from God for it. What goes around comes around. Tit for tat, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You and I are constantly tempted to think that when we're experiencing bad times or suffering, that God is punishing us for our misdoings, forgetting that he already did that on Christ on the cross. And Jesus' response is, that's a very small view of God. What if your affliction and what if your open wound exists not to punish you for your sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in you? Brothers and sisters, this isn't an easy answer, but it's a true one. It's a hard word. Because it leaves the work of God in the midst of our pain mysterious. Instead of karma, where we can neatly put human behavior into a good deeds, bad deeds, punishment, reward equation, we're forced to wrestle with the mystery of the providence of a good God who delights in displaying the glory of his works in us. This kind of answer is not For the faint of heart, and so we cry, Lord, have mercy on us all. But into the mystery of this hard word comes something more concrete, more immediate, and more powerful. Something we can grasp and hold on to. Here and now, whether or not God takes the affliction away, whether or not the open uh, wound is fully stitched up this side of heaven, we can find a deeper, real, living healing and peace. When Jesus comes to us every week in the liturgy and worship, and when he comes to us at the table, when he comes to us in preaching, when he comes to us in the form of other Christians that we share our hearts and our lives with throughout the week, he comes to deliver a word that unlocks and unleashes the healing. This word is, I forgive you. Jesus says, I forgive you for your pharisaical spirit, 
for your white-knuckled clinging to things other than me. I forgive you, middle schooler, for anxiously clinging to what your friends think of you above the peace that you could find if you only knew that your Father in heaven, in Christ, is already well-pleased with you. I forgive you, young adult, for wrapping your vision of the good life around your future career or some future relationship instead of just letting me wrap my arms around you. I forgive you, parent, for forgetting that your difficult child is ultimately in my hands, not yours, and that I will hold them just as I am holding you. I forgive you, my elderly brother or sister, for forgetting that your life, according to God the Father, is not the sum of your deeds or misdeeds done in the past, but is actually the sum of mine, that you are hidden with me and clothed in my righteousness. There's a really comical moment at the beginning of this passage. At least I find it funny. In verses 5 and 6, Jesus makes this powerful claim to divinity and says, I am the light of the world. And what does he do next? Having said this, he spits on the ground and made some mud with saliva and smeared it. Yes, the word is smeared in the original language on the man's eyes. I am the light of the world. (laughs) Right? How shall you and I... Be saved from this mess. Because in this picture is precisely what salvation is. God the Son is spit out of heaven and mixed up in the mud with us. And Jesus offers, in the words of the great litany, his bloody sweat as a sacrifice of atonement on the cross for you and for me. And God takes that dirty blood And smears it on our blind and sinful eyes and says, open. And you and I are simply left with the testimony. I don't fully know who this Jesus is. But this I know. I was blind. And now I can see. There is a fountain filled with blood. Drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all. Their guilty stains. Amen.